We develop our bedding with uncompromising standards. That is something that is very tangible to the end customer. And to the extent that folks care about that chain of goodness, I believe that they are willing to pay above what they could pay at, let's say, a Target or something like that. I think it's somewhat of a false dichotomy because I don't think that, like, kind of marginalizing product quality for profitability is necessarily a good long-term strategy. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. It's the first quarter of the new decade, and as you know, we are in unprecedented times. The world continues to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. We all have a part to play to flatten the curve and slow down the spread of this virus. I couldn't think of a more appropriate guest and company to feature during this time. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is David Reed, Chief Operating and Financial Officer at Bolin Branch, a direct-to-consumer brand that offers industry-leading luxury bedding and goods. My conversation with David was recorded a few months ago, prior to COVID-19. As you will hear David talk about in the show, Bolin Branch's decisions boil down to one choice, to do what's right. That's why it's no surprise that starting last week, Bolin Branch began donating mattresses and pillows to emergency medical operations in the fight against COVID-19. This keeps workers in their partner factories employed and helps medical and government agencies prepare for the crisis. They've already provided New York State with 1,000 mattresses and 5,000 pillows for emergency facilities in places such as the Javits Center, and they hope to fund more production in the days and weeks ahead as we face the uncertain future of this crisis. As a listener, you can join in on this effort and in spreading the word. Visit bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code GOODNESS to get 10% off and 10% of the proceeds funding this effort. Or you can donate directly. Each mattress costs $100 to make and deliver, but even $5 helps. I want to be clear, this is not an ad, but it's a call to action. We all have a part to play to stop the spread of this virus. Now, as for David himself, he oversees Bolin Branch's finance, operations, technology, customer experience, and business intelligence functions. David started his career with Deutsche Bank, working in both London and New York City. He subsequently moved to the corporate world, taking leadership roles as a CFO at Dylan's Candy Bar and VP of Business Development at Sweet Retail. David is a chartered accountant from the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland and holds a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of St. Andrews and Edinburgh, respectively. And so, without further ado, here's David Reed, Chief Operating and Financial Officer at Bolin Branch. Hey, David, thanks for joining me on The Backbone. We've got lots to get through. So I wanted to get started with your uh, career path and, and how you got to where you are now. And so you started your career as a CPA with Deutsche Bank, where you spent over 10 years as an investment banker. And then from there, you joined Dylan's Candy Bar as a CFO in your first operating gig before your current role as the president and CFO of Bolin Branch, an emerging direct-to-consumer brand. So talk to me about your journey and how it all started for you, David. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I'll, I'll say I was relatively uninteresting, 
in the fact that uh, I went to a relatively decent college and pretty much followed the herd. Um, everybody ended up as an investment banker or with a consultancy. I ended up as an investment banker. Deutsche Bank was the one that I joined. There was a, uh, the program that I joined uh, forced us through what is the British equivalent of the, uh, the CPA uh, called um, the CA over there. And um, that was both a, both a blessing and a curse. Um, it meant that I had a very good textbook knowledge of what accountancy was and what it was like to be a CFO. But it also uh, it also meant that the, the the bank utilized that, frankly, as a means to fire people. We had a graduate class of call it ten that got gradually whittled down to whittled down to three after uh, various people failed exams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, dropped out, and all of that good stuff. So that kind of took me through uh, basically the first decade of my career and um, I subsequently got into kind of 2013 2014 survived the crisis saw a a few rounds of layoffs within Deutsche Bank during that period uh, and just kind of ultimately figured out that um, and this maybe is overly dramatizing this but figured out that what I wanted on my epitaph was not was part of a transaction cost. And so um, always kind of had a little bit more of of a thirst for what underlies some financials because what we would do would would be to talk to CEOs, talk to CFOs, try and figure out what's going on at at that particular company so we could uh, typically debt finance them um, and and to ensure that they were a a sound credit worthiness. Now, you uh, to be competitive you only get so long with uh with kind of fortune 500 cfos and ceos so you only get kind of like one layer deep in terms of the analysis that you can that that you can really like do and so i always kind of had like a thirst for like i wasn't really understanding business um, I didn't really know what was going on under the hood. I could tell you what certain ratios should could, uh, should be. I could I could validate certain trends that was going on, but I couldn't really ever get to the point where I was like, I know exactly what's going on with this company, and I have a good uh, a good understanding of exactly what's moving. And kind of made the decision around 2012 2013 to move into more of an operating role. Um, just kind of looked in 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 kind of the the regular ways linkedin and the likes and found my way into dylan's candy bar um that was a christening of fire like i'd been 10 years basically reading financials from the top down and asking questions around them and now i was tasked with both building them from the bottom up and by a certain fortuitous set of events actually developing uh and building our erp platform at the time which we which we chose to be netsuite with with, with dylan's now i say that was a christening and a fire that was because largely like every meeting i walked into for the first few weeks people were talking about per- orders and sales orders and return authorizations and credit memos and customer refunds and every, every meeting I would have to go back and figure out what the hell these things were so there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, going on investopedia and wikipedia and all of this stuff to try and kind of like nod my head knowingly in these meetings and then and then figure out what was said thereafter 
Um, the, the, the christening of Firebit came with the ERP, ERP deployment. O- originally, I was kind of vice captain on this, this project, but the person who was ultimately tasked with implementing the system um, quit pretty early into the project, a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks into that project, and, we, and we'd already pay, prepaid the, the money, so it had to get done, it had to get done right. And of course, like you can get through meetings reasonably comfortably by kind of nodding, looking knowingly, and saying like one or two things smart that I could maybe pop into a conversation but you, you what you can't do is you can't BS a, uh, a system and configuring a system and so I kind of had to become very precise about language very precise about um, definitions of what we were what we were referring to and what our flows were and how information needed to flow and all the micro steps in logic that, that, that we needed to see to get comfortable with the financials and operations and have good inventory visibility and and, and the likes and so um, and so that was that was kind of in the first six months of that project. So not only did I go from this this uh, perverse experience of literally having to look up what purchase orders and sales orders were was like I was actually ended up being the one tasked with developing a system, which we ultimately deployed and deployed what I think was relatively successfully. Um, I then took a small stint into a technology company. We worked with one of our technology vendors um, at Dylan's Candy Bar, and I went over to work for them for uh, for, for nine months in kind of a, a, a product management role, which which. Uh, for me ultimately like led me to the conclusion that product management and sales wasn't the right thing for me and so I kind of looked back towards my kind of finance background um, and kind of uh, found this job at uh, at Ball and Branch started off as their VP of uh, their VP of uh, finance um, became their SVP of finance six months later, six months subsequent to that became their CFO. And then um, now just got um, my title is actually now chief operating and financial officer. So it's, it's, it's morphed slightly again since the since the acquisition. Uh, thanks for that overview. Uh, so tell me a bit about Bolin Branch itself. What does a company do? What is it all about? Yeah, so we sell we sell luxury bed linens. Um, we sell mattresses. We center largely around uh, the bedroom and the consumer goods associated with that. So bed sheets, mattresses, pillows, white goods, duvets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, our kind of special source is that we have complete visibility into the supply chain. We make sure that everything's done right from soup to nuts. So we actually have visibility into where the cotton's farmed. We ensure that that cotton is farmed on on uh, fully organic uh, organic land because this land has to sit kind of like for a certain period before it can be considered organic because like obviously pesticides have some half-life um we see that through kind of spinning ginning all the way into the factory and um kind of subsequently into our warehouse and then into our uh into our customers hands the um the bit uh, the reason why I call that special that the special source is we built that supply chain from the ground up. We lean pretty heavily on both the ethics side and the quality of the product side, and I think those two work synergistically. In that um, we pay, f- we were the uh, first officially fair trade certified uh, bedding company in the U.S. Um, which means we pay over and above the kind of uh, typical odds for our goods. 
Um, and some of that, um, we'll call it excess, the, the, these fair trade premiums go to kind of workers empowerment. They get to, they, they get this, some of that money gets dedicated to a fund, which they can utilize the things that, that are useful for those guys. Uh, some of the factories have used that to buy bikes to help them get to and from work. Some of those factories have, have bought cookers for various people's homes and the likes. And then I tie that in and I talk about the synergy there with uh, with the quality of the product, having complete visibility from the farmers all the way through the process to the factory uh, and through various different stages. I talked about spinning, ginning, etc., etc., means that to the extent that we work with our vendors to, let's say, uh, define how a product is made, it means we can pick the best possible option at every single stage in the manufacturing process. And in addition to that, when when we reach certain volume uh, thresholds, what we can do is we can work with our vendors, and we're not the type that goes, "Hey, uh, vendor A, give us give us a ten percent discount because we we've we've hit certain thresholds," um, or we don't try and flex our muscles like that. Um, because what that typically means is that the the, the factory that you buy something off um, will then go back into its supply chain and say, hey, I need to give these guys a better price. Uh, I need to reduce costs. So get me a better a cost. So their vendors ultimately go to them. They're like, okay, I can give you a better cost. You just have to give up some quality. Um, and so what we did was we kind of, we kind of uh, specified the entire supply chain. So we have complete visibility into every single purchase order that we write to ensure that it goes through this chain of goodness and that the quality is not is not in any way um, impaired throughout that process and also the fact that we believe we have really good uh, better than arm's length trans, uh, kind of relationships with these vendors means that there is some reciprocity there like the factory workers know our employees etc etc they know when they're working on the bottom branch line um, and we, we feel like that gets us a better product at the end of the day which ultimately satisfies our customers and uh, I, I want to dive into to the aspect of sustainability here, you know, part of uh, Bolin Branch's brand promise is the company's deep commitment, as you alluded to, to being uh, using sustainable raw materials throughout the business and having sweatshop-free labor. So you, you touched on this already, but you have a saying as a company that effectively it all boils down to one choice, and that is to do what's right. And so in, for example, in 2018, Bolin Branch's organic cotton saved over 592 million gallons of water. First of all, that is incredible. So congratulations on that. But I did want to ask, as the CFO uh, and COO, who's also responsible for the bottom line, and you know, now that you've also got investors, which we'll get to in a minute, how do you balance the trade-off between profitability and sustainability? I actually, I actually think the dichotomy is somewhat false. Um, in that, um, if if we develop our bedding with uncompromising standards, that is something that is very tangible to the end customer. And to the extent that folks care about that chain of goodness, I believe that they are kind of um, willing to pay above what they could pay at, let's say, a target or something like that. So I think there is kind of, and I, and I think investors are highly receptive to this. I think there is this concept that like, 
we aren't cutting any corners whatsoever and we're paying above the odds and i talked about that reciprocity before and i think in fact i know for a fact that um that our product is better than any out there on the market and i say i, I say that with not just some subjectivity around it i know with some objectivity around that like we've done a number of studies that basically say to say like our price point is somewhat of a hurdle to some point like we understand that but what we also know is that we have the highest repeat rates in our category across like all of our competitors so once people get over that threshold with our uh, with our business they recognize the quality that they're getting they recognize the the the, uh, the kind of ethics that we stand for and we always kind of talk about doing the right thing when nobody's looking um and and, and they repeat with more with a higher propensity than any other brand that we've we've kind of been able to survey and get data around. Um, so like, I, I think it's somewhat of a false dichotomy because I don't think that like kind of marginalizing product quality for profitability is necessarily a good long-term strategy. It's almost like you're giving the choice to the consumer to vote with their wallet. If they, you know, agree with what you stand for as a brand and they're willing to, uh, uh, be a part of that narrative and be a part of that change, they're going to vote with their wallets and buy uh, from Bull and Branch. Exactly. And I think, I think the, 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 the most, the most pertinent uh, fact around that is like, it's always hard online or in a Facebook ad or anything like that. When everybody says we're the softest sheets, we're the best quality sheets, etc etc to convince folks of that because that is the standard narrative um so the fact that really says that we are doing something a little bit different here that the product is differentiated is that like we can categorically say in independent studies that we've ran uh that once people get over the hurdle of the price point um, because it is slightly more than some of our competitors, uh, $250 for kind of uh, a queen, uh, king sheet set, um, then people repeat purchase more than they do with other brands. And we can see that in the data, et cetera, et cetera. And so switching gears now to um, the financing round, and, and you know, we, we talked about um, Bull and Branch now having investors. So in August of 2019, Bull and Branch raised $100 million from El Cateron's flagship fund, the world's leading consumer investor and private equity firm of LVMH. So before this raise, Bowen Branch was mostly self-funded, having raised only $12 million. And so what were some of your biggest learnings from the raise that could help a fellow CFO at an emerging direct-to-consumer brand uh, with their race. It's interesting. So it's, it's, it's something we're hugely proud of. It's like, we're super happy to be part of the El Caderton family. Um, one of the things that I would, that, that, that I would immediately say is like, when you walk into the room with those guys, they're like around the consumer space, they're the smartest guys in the room. So just being in their kind of orbit is, uh, hugely beneficial. Um, in terms of learnings from the race, I mean, uh, the there is a huge amount of diligence that goes on in the in in the process um it's also helpful i think one of the things that that, that i really learned from the process was that 
uh, investors like El Capitan are, are playing chess on a on a different chessboard. So in my day to day, we're worried about typically some operational things. We try and be as strategic as we poss- as we possibly can. But with any startup, you're probably think you're probably eighty percent doing and eighty percent getting through the day, and then twenty percent thinking about the strategy. These guys eat, sleep, and breathe strategy, and they really try and imbue that in their portfolio companies and all the meetings that we had in that process were very much like wow these guys are thinking on a different level than we are um and that was that that was like um uh that was very refreshing because what we had to do is we we knew what our strategy was and we knew where we were going and we knew what we stood for but as opposed to be as opposed to that being kind of um naturally understood you had to ladder every one of these initiatives up to some strategic pillars that were supporting the overarching goals and i think it's been a, an interesting learning experience to kind of like pull yourself out of the weeds a little bit to have conversations on different levels um, and to be able to walk into an i operations team and understand like like how we can engineer um, uh, how we can engineer a better product and a better experience and a better uh, open experience for the customer um, and, and costs associated with that versus uh, like when you're chatting with Al Caton who are very strategically focused and thinking two or three years down the road and so so that was hugely beneficial but it was kind of like admittedly a little bit of a um, a little bit of a shock to the system we're used to dealing in the micro they're very much dealing in the macro sounds like a, a great compliment to not only uh, you know having their capital on board but the strategic um, aspects that they bring to the table uh, sounds like a, a good match yeah completely agree they are uh, they are some seriously smart cookies <laughs> the last question here I wanted to ask you before we jump into our quick fire round is you know when we when we chatted earlier you mentioned that Bowen branch generates uh, in the nine figure territory in terms of revenue yet you've been able to keep a fairly lean finance function with two other people on your team and maybe this is now three people but needless to say still a relatively lean team as the CFO of an emerging direct to consumer brand how do you ensure you have the right tools and systems in place to scale and grow the finance org? Yeah, I think so. So one of my operating ethos is, and, and this kind of kicked off from the NetSuite implementation that we did back at Dylan's Candy Bar, and we did we did the same at uh, uh, we did the same at Bottom Branch. So we're also utilizing uh, we're all, uh, also utilizing NetSuite. But one of the one of the ethos or, or some of the ethos around that is to ensure that people aren't doing dumb work. I do not want to pay smart people to do like effectively dumb work. And uh, systems and, and, and computers are extremely good at doing repetitive tasks. And so to the extent possible, we engineered a system that is both scalable from a numbers perspective, from a kind of a quantity of transactions perspective, and scalable from a what channel do we do business in. And so when we were considering systems, we wanted to A, ensure that that scalability existed, B, that expansibility existed. And frankly, like we, we, I was relying on some of my historic experience at uh, Dylan's Candy Bar, 
just because I knew NetSuite well, um, I'd implemented it once before. And so I could, I could lean on that experience a little bit. Uh, but without that, I think what we've always tried to do is we've always tried to like kind of uh, preconceive all of the ways in which we will use this prob uh, this problem. And my sense is that salespeople are often uh, are often say told to say yes at, at any given uh, juncture, whether it's a feature now. Um, or not, they will typically say that, yeah, it's, it's under consideration by the product team, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we've always tried to do is we've always tried to preconceive ways in which we will use that system and then subsequently look for demonstrations of those systems in those specific ways. And unless we get that, we're not really um, uh, malleable in terms of moving forward. We, we need to be able to make sure it's uh, it's 100% can can capture the use cases that we intend to use it. Uh, it's almost like uh, measure twice and cut once, especially as you're thinking about you know different systems and tools to put in place. You really want to see uh, yeah. their capabilities uh, before you start to uh, incorporate them into into the company. Correct. Exactly. Yeah, what I wanted to do now is jump into our quickfire round. And the way this works is I'll ask you some questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Uh, sounds good. All right, so let's do it. Uh, what's your go-to online resource for all things startup finance or uh, direct consumer? Pitch a podcast that isn't yours. Obviously, yours is uh, first and foremost, but uh, I love the uh, the podcast Pivot. I think that both uh, Scott Galloway and Kara Swisher have a super interesting perspective on everything that they talk about and generally unique perspective. And I think it's just yeah. thought provoking and um, uh, I don't know. I just, I just think those guys are special. I think they're, I, I think they're really thought provoking and I find myself in my car driving, listening to it, nodding the whole time. I, I listen to their podcast as well when I'm not listening to my own, of course. Um, what's your favorite productivity hack? So I do two things. Um, for me, like I, I, I love to tout technology, but the way I remember things is by writing them down. Um, so I keep two notebooks. Uh, the first notebook has all my kind of doodlings that I will kind of write things down while I'm, when I'm mm -hmm. in the thing, et cetera, et cetera, um, just to kind of reinforce some of the messages and to uh, document them. And then the second notebook I have is a notebook that's strictly a to-do list. Um, and I just trans uh, transpose all of my doodles that are action points into that second notebook and kind of keep a running. So I have like a doodle notebook and a actual get stuff done notebook. That, that's a very thoughtful and thorough productivity hack. I like it. Uh, what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing? Um, I typically always look at my email um, before I, I, I won't necessarily answer all of my emails before I leave. But I will I will have um, I will review the emails just to make sure that nothing needs to be explicitly addressed before I jump in the car and, uh, and, and, and make my way home. Got it. And what's uh, one tech jargon or a startup jargon that uh, makes you cringe? Oh, I, I literally, I, I, I have a visceral hatred for tech jargon. Um, I, I find myself saying it from time to time and I want to stab myself in the throat. Um, but like when people say they want to double click on something in a conversation, I, I, I literally want to drive the pen uh, into my eyeballs. 
um, uh, if like all of the nonsense around kind of um, like if you re- if 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 you get into certain of the uh, recent S ones and listings and stuff like that, I find I find that. Um, uh, characterizing things like space as a service is like um, I, I, I don't know how to <laughs> is is a stretch at best um, but generally speaking I, I I have a pretty hard eye roll when it comes to tech jargon I sometimes find myself using it but again I I, 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 I mildly hate myself for doing it yeah uh I'll, I'll uh, make sure to avoid the uh, double click one around you. <laughs> um, what's the what's the best advice you've received so far in your career? Um, so I had a particularly uh, a particularly scary boss at one point in uh, Deutsche Bank, um, and uh, he told me once that all models are wrong, some are useful, um, and it stuck with me um, largely because. Um, like uh, you try and model anything the moment you finish that model it's wrong uh, but some is some models are super helpful because you can understand what is the um, kind of magnitude of sensitivity varying this particular variable does that does that have a lot of impact to the overarching business or does that have relatively little impact to the overall business and so you can kind of like you can understand the sensitivities of models but never never get under the illusion or arrogance that any model you build is right for more than a nanosecond after you've finished it the great things about models is that they are precisely imperfect <laughs> and uh yeah, I like the way that you exactly. framed. Exactly, like you framed that. Yeah, yeah. The the the, the only thing I the only thing I would also uh, kind of espouse around modeling is that sometimes the smarter you get around modeling is 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 the dumber you get. the The more micro assumptions you start making, um, the typically greater impact they have on the overarching model. And so when you when your model is particularly special or you think it's particularly special because it's because it's multiplying very small numbers by very big numbers to come up with, let's say, a revenue, let's say, conversion factor by by AOV, mm-hmm. by the by transactions. If you are off on some of those tiny assumptions by 0.1%, you can really you can really change some of the models. So it's really helpful in 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 my mind to understand that the model's wrong and that you should think about the model a couple of ways in that like okay, once I roll this up, not only am, not only should I try and be smart about the underlying assumptions here, but I need to triangulate the output with reasonableness as well. So always good to be far from arrogant and understand that that's wrong that model that you've just produced is wrong yeah. your uh your job as any good cfo is to try and make sure that it's wrong in uh in in the smallest magnitude possible and i think i think just the the initial admittance that uh that you are wrong and this process will produce a model that isn't necessarily going to be accurate in the future um is good advice to heed because it will always it will it, it will never get you to believe your own baby that you've spent many hours producing it will always be like okay this is this is an estimation of the future and nothing mm-hmm. yeah 
Right, right. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much. This has been an awesome chat. I, I learned a lot about Bull and Branch, about the balance of you know sustainability, profitability, and why it's not truly a balance. It's just the a way of doing business um, and allowing consumers to vote with their wallet. Uh, also, learning about Bull and Branch's um, recent fundraise and what you've been able to take away from that. I think some of those learnings are definitely transferable to other uh, listeners and other uh, finance leaders who may be going through the same themselves, as well as talking about the way that uh, you think about and evaluate systems and tools to run a lean finance operation. So thank you so much for the time. And I really enjoyed this chat. Yeah, likewise. Great to great to chat and hope all is well up there in Canada. Awesome. Thanks, David. Take care. Bye now. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. Hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation with David Reed at Bone Branch. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.